Hey, y'all. Hey guys, welcome to Night Shift with Andrea Up Late. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Um, whew, I feel really close to that camera. Uh, how are you guys doing? Welcome to the show. If you are new here, we tape a live show every Tuesday night on YouTube. Uh, and then we drop the next day wherever you stream your podcast. You can listen to it that way when you're going for a run or cleaning your house or just going back and forth in your car. Uh, it is a true crime show. So, you know, always take that uh, into consideration if little ones are listening. Otherwise, uh, buckle up. We got a good show for you tonight. My good buddy, Jay Keep from the One More and I'm Out of Here podcast is going to be my fill-in co-host tonight. We do rotating co-hosts every week. So let's welcome him to the feed here. Here we are. Hey, thank you for having me. Absolutely. We've been trying to do this for a long time, I feel like. We absolutely have, but we got schedules aligned and all is good in the world now. We it only took like outside a year, of this story. really. <laughs> this this story, I'm, I'm excited to hear this. I'm, I'm super excited to hear it. You know, I, I seriously, I, this should be like a soundbite that I play when I say, I think I say this every week, but I think I say it every week. The more I get into the case... It's like this could easily be a two or three parter. I say it every time, but it's true. So I'm going to give you all the meat and potatoes of this case. Uh, no pun intended once you hear it. Uh, and then we can talk about ways you can even branch off and talk about this in a whole different kind of way uh, with a whole different direction and concentration. So, um yeah, so let's let's go on and dive in. So this case, it's interesting. If you are a listener of the show, then you know that we always kind of start out with a little pop culture reference for the year that the crime took place. And that way it kind of sets us there. Sometimes they're cases from the 80s or, you know, maybe so when we talk about things that were in pop culture at that time, it helps us to remember that we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have Internet at our fingertips. We didn't have uh, closed circuit television and surveillance cameras everywhere at every corner that we have now to harm parking off of uh, to try to help solve these crimes. So it kind of takes us to the place a little bit. This is not one crime. This is potentially 50 plus. We, we don't even know. We To this day, we don't know how many um, actual crimes took place in terms of this story. So I am starting the show with an incident that happened in 1997, and then we're going to take it back to the beginning. Uh, so let's go over some 1997 pop culture references. What you got for that, Keith? You got anything off the top of your head that happened in 97? Because I, I had to kind of think about it. I was, I was a junior in high school. So what, when I saw that, yeah. I was like, ooh, all right, junior in high school. All yeah. right, so you, you had a bunch of crappy music. Some, yep. some, bangers, <laughs> some bangers that came out, but then there was a lot of garbage. Um, yep. I'm trying. I'm trying. I was gonna pull some sports, some sports stuff up, but I did not oh. have time. I was on the phone with my brother. But okay, to, okay. Who was in the Super Bowl that year? I can't remember. Oh, but it's like um, like high school was my favorite time of year. Like all four years of high school, I loved high school. I loved I high like, school too. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is '97. We yeah, we're pretty much the same age, I think. So I'm right there with you. I actually think I almost feel like I remember the Super Bowl like gathering I was at. But I do not. 
That's funny you say that. All right, it's let's see here. So in terms of like, I know, in terms of games or electronics or whatever, the Tamagotchi, I think we were past that point at this point, uh, was the thing. GoldenEye 007, if you were playing video games then. I do remember right? that. That's the one with the, yeah, I remember, um, I actually, I'm not a video gamer and I never really was, but I had some friends who were at that time and I do remember playing that game a lot. I think that was missed. I guess it was because it was new and the big one. Absolutely. Um, Tickle Me Elmo. Beanie Babies were still just hopping and popping in 97. Uh, what else we have here? So in 1997, we got Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm uh, sure we got some hardcore fans out there, y'all, but I'm okay without it. Uh, <laughs> but we did leave, we did lose uh, Notorious B.I.G., R.I.P.B.I.G. and Princess Die. Now, I do remember where I was when I learned that Princess Die passed away. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, it was a Saturday because I thought it was a Saturday Night Live skit. I didn't believe that the news blips about it were real. I was like with my family and my niece and everyone on a trip to like explore some caverns. And we were like all piled up in the hotel room after that evening. And, and the stuff was coming on. And I've I thought Saturday Night Live was coming on. So you, there was that. You bring that um, up. It's, it's like, it's like Rob on ours. He does, you know, this day in history. But when you bring that up, it, it feels like Princess Di was earlier than that to me. But I do remember exactly where I was. Right. I remember exactly. I was, I was at a, a house party. May or may not have been in trouble, but I remember that. And it came across yeah. and it was almost the same thing. Like, is that no that's not real that can't be real yeah you know i think that it's more um you know looking back on it now of course she had you know this legacy that we all talk about and stuff but it's like it's like i don't know it was more powerful at the time than i think we remember it was obviously because we remembered what we were doing you know so obviously it affected right. us in a way that maybe we don't remember that it did so get this, in 1997, Ireland granted, I had no idea about this, about Ireland, its first legalized divorce. In 97. What? Jeez, oh, peace. I don't Legalized. Do you think it's easier to get divorced there than it is here? Oh, I mean, I mean, you have one of those things. <laughs> it took till 1997 until they actually legalized it. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they just like stand been, in a circle, I've been, I've been like sing a, a song, pass a rock around. <laughs> I've been through a couple, so I, it seems pretty easy here, de depending on depending on the parties that are involved. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. You um, the, the world question. got its earliest Answer. camera phone and functioning Wi-Fi. <laughs> and Ellen DeGeneres made history by coming out on Ellen. That was 97. See, that feels like that was way earlier than that to me. Yep. I agree with that. I, I, I remember right? when she came out because that was, everyone was, oh my gosh. So, yeah. God, God that's yeah. crazy. When you, hey, literally, in I mean, the chats, we're, not that, old. we're uh, not that okay, old. Okay. So, fashion. We're not. Say it um, three times and click your heels and it will come true. Uh, so fashion and then we'll start wrapping up the pop culture. We got baby doll dresses, platform sneakers. All this junk is coming back. Starter jackets, women's eyebrows. I underlined this because it's personal. 
were super, super thin. I think Gwen Stefani told us we all had to pluck them. We did. And we are all, aren't we ladies? We are all paying the price now. All right. The tunes, we have some Rage Against the Machine and Wu-Tang Clan toured together in 97. Um, and we had Chumbawamba. So we're going to have to end on that terrible note. That's a good, that's a good place to end. <laughs> that's where everything ends. I feel like you might have been jumping off a couch to that song, though, at that house party you were at in 97. <laughs> I feel like I could see that. Like you had a hemp choker. <laughs> you might, you may or may not be correct, but I'm not saying yes. <laughs> Okay, guys, we're going to switch gears and we are going to talk Robert, Willie, Porkchop, Picton. I'm not making that up. That was a nickname that got coined for him after the fact. Um, unfortunately, I will eventually tell you why that is. But let's get started here uh, in 1997. And we're going to be on the outskirts of Vancouver, uh, Canada. All right. So British Columbia. We're going to our neighbors in the north for this case. So excuse me, we have Wendy Lynn Eistetter. So Wendy was a working prostitute at this time. She was a drug addict. Uh, she was pretty heavily involved in all of it at this time. And so she required the sex work to get the money to feed the drug habit, right? So she's kind of working her, her corner where she usually stands and a man in a truck pulls up and Wendy goes over to him. She immediately was met with an overpowering stench. And when we continue to talk about this, I don't mean the guy kind of just like needed a shower or forgot his deodorant. Um, it, everyone continued. This is a continuing theme that his stench was that of the, the way people would describe it uh, would make your stomach turn. So it's pretty bad stuff. Uh, she could visibly notice how filthy he was. However, she needed the money. So she agreed to climb in the truck, but she actually knew of this man. This was not her first encounter with him. Uh, she knew him to be named Willie. That's what he went by. And soon they were on their, the road to Willie's house. All right. They went to his pig farm. Willie had a pig farm in Port Coquitlam in British Columbia. That's about 15 or 20 miles west of, or excuse me, east of Vancouver. So they arrive at Willie's trailer. They are on the pig farm. This was a pretty large uh, about a 40 acre pig farm he had. All right. The two engage in consensual sex. Everything is still in the up and up. Soon after Wendy decides that she wants to use Willie's phone to call her boyfriend. He tells her she can. So she turns to make the call. When Wendy turns her back, Willie comes behind her and slips a handcuff on her wrist. All right. The creep factor is already, already creeping in. She immediately begins to fight back. Whoa. I, you know, I just, I don't know. I mean, as a woman or a man, but I'm thinking as a woman, I'm at this man's house and I feel my hand be pulled behind me in a handcuff, you know? Um, <laughs> Unless you asked for it, but obviously. I was going to say that I didn't ask for. That's exactly what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> Willie was able to grab a, so he gets the handcuff on her wrist she turns to fight. So this keeps him from being able to put the handcuff on the other wrist. Okay. So she's got the one wrist wrist cuffed. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Willie was able to grab a butcher knife there in the room. 
He lunges at her. They start fighting. He's trying to slice at her when he can. He's punching her, beating her mercilessly. She's not going down without a fight. So she's punching back. She's kicking. She's trying to get the knife. Um, he continues to alternate beating her and stabbing her or attempting to. She gets knocked unconscious a time or two. I think one time she actually wakes up outside. Uh, but she is able to get the knife from Willie in their next little scuffle. She slashes at him and she's able to slice his throat. Actually, it's pretty deeply. So he begins to lose blood very quickly and falls to the ground. He passes out almost immediately. Wendy <clears throat> runs outside. She runs to the nearest road, but guys, as she's running, she's holding her abdomen because little did she know before, but she's been eviscerated. I don't often use the term evisceration eviscer on this show, except for I did two weeks ago when I did the Broken Arrow or Bever House killings, which was horrible in a whole different kind of way. Um, that was tragic that was and sad. That was, that was Dexter's, wasn't it? That was Dexter's. Yeah. Dexter Pitts was the co-host. Oh, my goodness. That was tough. But uh, someone was eviscerated there. If you're not familiar, that just means that your abdomen has been cut in a way that the the little lining that we have that kind of holds our organs in uh, gets sliced. So she's running, but when she's running, she's covering her abdomen so her intestines essentially don't fall out of her. All right. So she's running to the road, obviously completely in shock, right? He's passed out. She flags down a car that goes by. It's an older couple. So they grab her, take her to the hospital. She's explaining to them and then also to the, um, to the uh, hospital when she gets there, when she, she's kind of in and out of consciousness at this point, she's lost a ton of blood. And she's explaining that there's another stabbing victim uh, at the residence. She's immediately rushed into emergency surgery. At about the same time, Willie has actually recovered enough. This dude's like a cockroach, y'all. You will see over and over again, he is able to recover from a lot. And now he gets in the car, his throat is sliced to drive himself to the hospital. Uh, however, wherever he takes himself is a, like a smaller facility and they don't have the resources needed to properly take care of him because he's going to need some significant procedures as well. So he gets transferred, excuse me, to the to a different hospital. He gets actually transferred to the same hospital he's at. All right. Keep in mind, she still had that one handcuff right on one wrist. So as he's recovering from his surgery, police start to question him. They've been made aware that a handcuff key fell out of his pants and was found by an orderly that just so happened to be the right key to fit the handcuff that this other stabbing victim came in with on her wrist, right? So they used it to unlock the handcuff on her wrist. He's charged with attempted murder, aggravated assault, unlawful containment. However, Wendy won't give a statement. So we're going to run into this a lot with some of these ladies. Um, a few reasons because of their background. A lot of times I think people get clouded by their drug use or prostitution and forget that like actually probably whoever's talking to you could care less when they're looking at the fact that you were just stabbed. You know, like you can tell them you use drugs and you're prostitute. Likely right. not going to be getting in trouble for that. Um, but she also mainly didn't want to talk or give a statement because she was absolutely terrified of this man. So despite all the facts they have and the handcuff key, the 
prosecution drops the charges. Willie describes her just as a drug addicted prostitute to law enforcement. He says that she tried to get one over on him and wanted to rob him for his money for drugs and that that's what happened and that's how their struggle ensued. Also at this time, Willie and his brother Dave, he goes by Dave or David, depending on the source, owned a bar on their farm, you ready for this one, called Piggy's Palace. Many members of... I don't know. I don't know. I can keep a straight face with that. I mean, I've read it so much, it doesn't really go away. Uh, It was a pig farm, I guess, so there's that. It only gets worse, though, because many members of the actual local police force, local business owners, and some government officials patronized this establishment. So they all kind of got together and were like, yeah, you know, she's on drugs. She's a prostitute. They just kind of believe his story. She gets washed the wayside. Prosecution drops the case. No charges are pressed. Um, But they did keep his clothing as evidence. That's important. Keep that back here in your brain somewhere. And when you wind up spending weeks recovering. Hmm? And and, and it's funny, like how like that type of stuff happens. And, And we hear about this in, you know, back in the day or now where uh, we know what she is, whatever, mm-hmm. which she's still a human being, still a human being that needs to be accounted for. So when that stuff gets just washed away, just because yeah. certain life choices, I get it. Like, and it's unfortunate, but you know, guess what? 20 bucks is 20 bucks. We have to make a way. Listen, that's, and that's the way they then you buckle up because if you're even a little bit frustrated now, you just, get ready because um, I agree with you. I do know, and I've talked on this before. I do think for the most part, the, we're in 2023. I do think for the most part, law enforcement wants to solve a case. They want this victim to either be identified or their murderer to be identified or their assaulter to be identified. I do think that more so now than ever, even if you are in a high risk lifestyle and you have this kind of an occupation that doesn't lessen their case for you uh, these days, I really don't think so for the most part in most places. Now, because it's a high risk lifestyle, if you have someone else, another case as well, you've got to solve and you have other leads, you have other people coming forward. It goes to reason that you might make more progress on the other one. So then just by nature, this one's going to look, you know, uh, not like it's being looked into. That I think is the case. Now, the case we're talking about today, that is not at all how this went down. So you will see at every turn, um, you will see blind eyes turned, uh, even some statements from now. This this isn't blanket. This isn't everyone on that police force there in Canada at that time. But there were a few who definitely made made verbal mention of the fact that essentially this was OK, because like there was kind of no point in, in following up on these things. So we'll get into that. But you're exactly right. I agree with you 100 percent. So after everything I just told you. Now our story is going to begin. All right. So let's let that sit there in 1997. And that's this, that is where a lot of things came to culmination, but we're going to take it back now. So Robert Picton was born on October 24th of 1949. Uh, He was born to Leonard and Louise Picton. Sounds like a sweet little farm couple, right? Uh, They were not. They were Canadian pig farmers living in, like I just told you, Port Coquitlam in British Columbia. 
He had an older sister named Linda and a younger brother named David. Uh, but the, the brothers stayed on the farm. And at some point, reports kind of are skewed depending on what source you read. But either Linda chose to leave because she didn't want to live on the farm and she chose to leave and go live with other relatives. Uh, some reports say that mom and dad sent her to live with relatives because a pig farm was no place for a young lady to grow up. Either way, she got lucky that she was gone. So she was sent to Vancouver where she could grow up away from the farm. Uh, their father was pretty much abusive if he was even present. He was often not present in their lives or involved in their rearing. Uh, the boys became pretty attached to their mother out of necessity, really, because dad wasn't you know, really part of the process. But this attachment to their mother, I think, will prove to be a good uh, bit of detriment to them both. And this will be a wonderful case of uh, or discussion of nature versus nurture. We do that a lot on this show because we're talking about people who do heinous things and you kind of always wonder why. So Louise, the mother, was described as a workaholic, eccentric and tough. Uh, the boys had to work very long hours on the farm from a very young age, even on school days. So they met, they missed a lot of school. They often stank horribly they weren't allowed to bathe much at all like once every few days and they're working on a farm so if you've ever worked on a farm or been around one a few hours and you're going to be pretty gross you know if even if even that much so uh they also a lot of reports there's no sense in getting in the weeds with this but a lot of reports talk about mom's physical appearance uh that as time went on she was kind of a i guess like a, a sturdy lady Pretty, pretty healthy lady. Uh, she, I guess her teeth were all um, like essentially rotting out of her mouth. Uh, her, she had almost like, I mean, some accounts say like just almost a full on beard, but I guess um, a lot of facial hair happening for her. And then her hair on top was thinning and receding pretty significantly. So they kind of culminate that with her attitude to just paint a picture of someone who's just not super pleasant to be around. Um, well, so she's not allowing them to take very many baths. They're working really hard. There were even reports that Willie, our, our guy we're talking about today, the star of the show, would hide in pig carcasses as a child when he wanted to avoid someone. God. So that's what we're starting with. I mean, I mean, that's where this starts. Almost speechless. Almost. But almost. I'm going to I'm going to make it what happen. The, what the hell? Yeah. 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 I'll make you speechless here. Just wait. So he was, as you can imagine, unpopular with the kids at school. They made fun of him. Um, he constantly smelled, they would say, like dead animals, manure, you name it. He never wore clean clothing. He was teased for a speech impediment, which is terrible. That only makes it worse. Uh, and he was not very successful in school academically, which I'll be honest, uh, you don't have a lot going for you, even if, you know what I mean? Like, so even if he was a smart kid, I don't think his grades would reflect that a lot, given all these other circumstances. Um he actually was finally, he just dropped out at 16 years old. But leading up to this time when he dropped out of school at 16, there are reports that talk about they had grown up in one home uh, for a few years as it, like when he was a little bitty boy. And at some point they moved to another farm. 
the first home I think had like four, seven, something like that pigs. The next one had like dozens. Eventually they have like 700 pigs and become what is supposed to be a full functioning pig farm. Uh, it doesn't necessarily work as such, but all accounts show that their home was pure filth. So it wasn't just that the boys were filthy and uh, needed baths at every turn. The home was littered with uh, any any leftover food. The doors were left open most of the time and the animals were allowed free reign of the home. So you have pigs rooting outside, walking through the home. There's animal feces throughout the home. There's um, sometimes they would feed the animals inside the home. So like if you can imagine beating a pig in your home, there wasn't any furniture. There was like a mattress on the floor. Sounds like once he got to be a bit of an older young young boy, like leading up to his teenage years, the cabinets, like the cabinetry in the kitchen and the refrigerator had locks on them, but only mom had the key. So when I said earlier that dad was abusive and just kind of not around, that was probably best case scenario. At least he kept his distance. Uh, but like I said, that caused them to form this attachment to their mother and uh, not an ideal one. Uh, it's definitely not going to set him up to have warm regards to women, which we see a lot in these kinds of cases. So that gives you a little bit of backstory on his upbringing, and it really just doesn't get better. So they were made to work very hard on the farm still from sunup to sundown. Uh, like I said, they'd only go to school at this point two or three days a week. Uh, they were always so filthy that, like I said, the kids bullied them, <clears throat> but this part of the story, I don't know, man, I, the victims that we're going to talk about, it's terrible what happened. Uh, but this particular paragraph that I wrote here bothers me more than almost anything else. I, I don't know if you, even if you haven't had children, if you have, if you're around kids of this age, it's heartbreaking. So he gets uh, he learns some kind of lesson uh, outside of school because he saved his allowance for quite some time and he bought a calf as a pet. So you got to think they have all these pigs running around, you know, some dogs, whatever. But he buys a calf. Uh, he loved it. He cared for it. In fact, I mean, it sounds like probably this was one of his more closely emotionally tied relationships that he had was taking care of this calf and you know the, just like the love or companionship that he received from it this became a constant for him he would he would rise early in the morning to feed it uh before leaving for work when he dropped out of school by the way later on he wound up um going to be a butcher's apprentice but for now he's still a little boy and he's in school and he's got this calf so he would brush it and feed it one day he came home from school but he couldn't find his calf. Uh, he'd had it for a little while at this point. He can't find it. So he looks around uh, everywhere and his dad tells him to go, go look in the barn for your calf. Once he was there, he found his calf um, strung up and slaughtered. It was flayed open and draining of blood. Wow. Does that not get you right in the heart? Oh, I mean, what a way, the, the one thing that he can actually love, I mean, probably legitimately, and I, I mean, I can't speak for him, but probably legitimately is now gone. It, with that, it, well, and just with the that devastation, 
Yeah. And the devastation and shock of it. I mean, even if you have parents that love you and nurture you, but your pet dog gets hit by a car, you're devastated, you know, and in this situation with the neglect uh, and the isolation already, and then to have this, it just, oh gosh, broke my heart. Um, He was inconsolable, as you can imagine. Uh, It says a lot of reports say he didn't speak for days or maybe even weeks to anyone. He fully shut down after this. Uh, And, you know, of course, it says the emotional trauma stayed with him for the rest of his life. And I'm sure that it did. Uh, When David, his brother, this is a little side story, but it gives you a little more insight into mom. When David was 16, he was trying to learn to drive. So he takes the family truck out with permission to, uh, you know, kind of run the roads a little bit. While he was driving, he happened to hit someone. All accounts are that this was an accident. We don't really know how it happened, but he ran into someone walking on the side of the road pretty significantly. All right. Um, He's panicked, as you can imagine. He's 16 years old. So he drives home and he tells his parents what happened. There was significant damage. All right. So we have dents. uh, It's dented in throughout. And you've got to think, I think this was a 1960 model. So this was not made of plastic like cars are today. So this is a metal truck, right? And a heavy duty farm truck. And it was dented and had um, at least one blood stain. So upon telling his mother about this, she doesn't ask who he hit. She doesn't ask where that person is, how they are or anything. We have different reports on whether or not he drove mom back to the scene where it happened or if she drove alone uh sources say both things either way they go to the scene her first question by the way was how is the truck it it was nothing else so they go to the scene and they see the boy lying on the side of the road louise gets out of the truck goes down to where the person is that was hit looks him up and down and gives him a shove. He proceeds to roll down the ravine there to like a a creek or a ditch bed below. The boy was 14 year old Tim Barrett. So the family, the the, um, Picton family takes the truck. They call the mechanic to come meet them at his shop. And they take the truck there and ask him to handle it. He will say later to authorities that they asked him to basically pop out all the dents and clean it and repaint it where there was blood or where it was missing paint. Um, And he will tell later that he was terrified of this family. He knew they were odd. Uh, He didn't really know why he felt the way he felt. He just knew he didn't much like being around them. And he was also very confused because these were people, I told you the appearance of Louise. I told you the appearance of the house. These were not people that, you know, routinely service their vehicles or kept them in tip top shape or needed to go to the mechanic late at night for him to fix something. Right. So his antenna was raised. He knew something was strange. He did remove the dents for them he did not remove the blood stain, nor did he paint over it. He just told them he wasn't like he removed the dents and that's all he could do for it. So meanwhile, Tim's parents, Philip and Philip and another Louise were searching for him. Uh, They filed a missing persons report at the local station and set out on foot with some friends and relatives to search for their son because he had never come home after his nighttime walk. 
Not long into the search, Philip finds his son's shoe in the road. Now we talk about this often. We talked about it with the boy, um, Sam, Sam Smith, I believe is that his name? The one, the 19 year old that was potentially hit by a Murdoch car that Buster had been in um, years ago. So he's one of like the five of the weird Murdoch saga murders um, and how his shoes were on his feet. But they said that he was hit by a car. But we talk about the fact that if you're hit by a car, it's almost never that you will have both shoes on your feet. Um, so yeah. Philip finds his son's shoe in the middle of the road. Uh, he's terrified and he it doesn't take long to look down and find his son at the bottom of the ditch. Um, Tim was face down and he had already passed away at this point. Uh Autopsy shows later that Tim's injuries that he sustained were a fractured skull, subcranial hemorrhage, fractured and dislocated pelvis, which are all very horrible injuries and very, very painful ones at that, but they weren't fatal. Actually, what killed him was lying face down in this ditch. It had rained the night before, so he actually died of drowning. So had mother not pushed him down this, he potentially could have been found and saved. Uh Again, this doesn't directly involve Robert, but it's a testament to his mother's character and the kind of thing that he was surrounded by as he was growing up. Yeah. Uh, oh, goodness. When Willie was 16, like I said, he dropped out of school and became a butcher's apprentice. Um, around 1977, 1978, his parents at this point have died. So... Rest in peace, guys. I'm not too worried about that. So after his parents died in 1978, those three siblings, remember it was uh, Richard, his brother Dave, and his sister Linda, who was not living at the residence. They inherited this property, but now it was worth a few million dollars. So this is a pretty significant farming operation they had. And like I said, extensive land. Um, Linda wanted nothing to do with the farm, so she allowed her brothers to buy her out of her piece. She continued on her life elsewhere. So David and Willie buy out her, and then they sold off part of the acreage, the 40 acres. They didn't need all of it to the tune of around $6 million. So now they've had this windfall. So now David and Willie, neither of which you're going to learn are upstanding citizens uh, in the community there just got this windfall of a, of close to $6 million between the two of them. David went on and moved into the family home at this point, and Robert wound up moving into a trailer that was on the property. This is a property that has like multiple outbuildings and things like that. Um, yeah. If it were a proper working farm, you can imagine between a slaughterhouse and, you know, maybe some sort of a rendering situation, other shelters and barns to keep the animals in, you know, so you can picture a lot of buildings on this property. In fact, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I do have some pictures. I'll start to pull up. So, because I'm going to pull up a picture. I'm just saying, once I pull up a picture, I can't see the chats. So, if anybody asks anything, that we need to answer. Um, you just let me know. Yep. But let's see here. I do have a picture of the property. Uh, here we go. So this is a bit of an idea 
this was during an investigation, hence all the extra vehicles on the roadway. If you were just listening, I'm showing a picture of um, the Picton property. There's a large barn, multiple, multiple outbuildings, the home, a bunch of junk. We'll learn here in a little bit that they attach a salvage yard to it. So if you're looking now, you'll see a bunch of old vehicles and things like that. That's what that is from, that they owned and wound up working separately from the pig farm eventually. Uh, it looks like a hot mess though. This doesn't look like a nice, <laughs> I understand the farm's a farm, but this doesn't look like a, yeah, it doesn't look like an upstanding uh, operation. I don't think I want to get my pork from there, but either way. Um, so uh, Willie's moved into the trailer on the property. Eventually though, the brothers converted that big barn we just saw into what we talked about earlier. The, uh, do you remember what it was called? The Piggy Palace? Um, but they actually deemed it, they made it into this big bar and they deemed it a nonprofit organization. All right. Cause these boys are all about their charity work. They actually, when they did it for their, um, LLC or whatever you get in Canada, I'm guess it's not an LLC, but to make it a corporation, they named it Piggy's Palace Good Times Society. That's so they essentially made it a private club. They made it a private club. This is so they can avoid all the regulations that would come with this because it's a nonprofit. All right. So they started to host large parties there. Eventually, these parties become almost every night. They are starting to get sometimes some like noise complaints and things like this. These parties start to get a bit out of hand. Uh, they're, like I said, almost nightly. Well, now at this point, we've got Hell's Angels coming in. Now they've got a huge population of Hell's Angels coming to party with them on this property at the Piggy's Palace Good Time Society. So they would sometimes have upward of, you ready for this, 1,700 people at a party. Oh. So now they're starting to make it a habit of bringing in these sex workers from this place called DTES is how it's referred to. Um, that's the acronym for Downtown Eastside. Downtown Eastside is an area outside of Vancouver that has been compared to Skid Row. In fact, it's been called Vancouver's Skid Row. We're going to talk about that area here in a moment. It's also referred to, you might see in some reports, as the low track. Um, so they started kind of like driving in these sex workers from DTS and they're kind of at the parties for entertainment for these guys, including the Hells Angels and the Picton Brothers. All right. So even though Willie now has plenty of money, he's continuing to raise and slaughter pigs. So if you've got a nonprofit organization that's not really a nonprofit organization and you got Hell's Angels on your property and you got sex workers coming in, you probably don't want a bunch of outsiders that that don't know you and don't know the property to come to your parties. So you could have, I don't know, a guard dog or you could have a very angry hog. So this like 600 pound hog is now roaming the perimeter of this property. He would attack, he would charge, he would bite. And so this is actually doing a really good job of keeping anyone out that they didn't want in. So part of Willie's job was to take the pork processing scraps to a rendering plant in Vancouver. So if you don't know, a rendering plant is 
So if you if you think about the process of slaughter, an animal is slaughtered. You do different things with different parts of its body, whatever you need to get done, dispose of the waste. But for the most part, whatever is not actually used for meat uh, and is not left over, you put in buckets or barrels and you take to a rendering plant and there it's ground down or quote rendered right into basically like a gelatin that is then used in cosmetics, lipstick, uh, candies, you name it, all kinds of things. So it's literally all the remnants, the scraps that could not be used after the animal was butchered. So this was Willie's particular job was to take these scraps to the rendering plant. After delivering the scraps, he would then often drive over to the east side to the DTS ES that we were just talking about and go see the prostitutes there. Most of the addicts and sex workers on the track, uh, a lot of them, a lot of them actually knew of Willie and they, the ones that did know of him didn't seem to mind him. Uh, they knew that he was disgusting, like physically disgusting because he was so filthy and stunk so bad. Outside of that, he had been a pretty nice guy to them for the most part. But as time went on, some girls began to notice that sometimes when girls left with Willie, they didn't ever return. So weird. What, what you're going to find here, right. These women, the women that we wind up not knowing where they are, these aren't just like high, they are a high risk lifestyle, but they aren't women who didn't have anyone to look after them. In fact, most of them, had, a lot of them had families uh, that looked after them. A lot of them had children. A lot of them had uh, mothers or ex-boyfriends or whatever, not to mention the ladies that they worked with on the street uh, kept up with them and, you know, would look after them or if they were missing, that goes noticed. That did not go unnoticed to them. So they started to notice that sometimes girls would leave with Willie and did not come back. A lot of them started to go to police with some suspicions. So this is where your frustration can start. Um, they were pretty greatly ignored at this time. And this starts to happen a bit more frequently over time. All right. So now we've got the salvage yard that I just spoke on a minute ago. So Dave Picton has kind of made the salvage yard his baby. He kind of runs it. It's there on the property, um, kind of adjacent to the pig farm. There was a guy named Bill Hiscox, and Bill was a guy who worked daily at the Picton Brothers salvage yard uh, for Dave specifically. But he would have to go to the pig farm to pick up his paycheck weekly. He did describe it as a, quote, creepy place. Uh, he knew about the rash of missing women now. This is starting to become a bit more of a whisper around town. People are hearing that this is going on. And he knew that Willie frequented the low track area. I think that Willie wasn't necessarily quiet about his indiscretions. Um, he'd go looking for women. Uh, he didn't really want to call authorities at first. Uh, he kind of couldn't put a finger on his bad feeling. He just knew he had one. And I think more than likely he was either scared to say anything or afraid of what he really would find out if he, if he really said this out loud. Right. So. Well, and, and with, and with that, like, um, I'm not, you know, the law enforcement side, but the fire, the fire side, whenever like we get called for, you know, a domestic or whatever, there a lot of times. Yeah. The, the woman, the female does not want to, if that's the one that's, you know, accusing, doesn't really want to talk about it. Yeah. So it makes, it makes it hard for us 
to delineate exactly what's happening. So like, yeah, that psychology I get, like I completely understand that as far as on their end, not, not his weird ass end, but. Yeah. There's a lot of times where, you know, this happens in cases in general, but in this one, there's, there's a lot as we go on of the, well, I kind of, kind of thought maybe, or it's more than I kind of thought maybe you're going to hear some things that people knew for sure was happening at that farm uh, and didn't say anything. Yeah. So it, it, it kind of only gets worse in that sense. But in 1998, remember now we're coming back up to where we started the show when we were talking about Wendy, who was attacked by Willie with the handcuff and the surgery and all that in 1998, when that happened and he hears about Wendy's attack, uh, and again, in 1999, so two different times, Bill Hiscox went to police with these concerns. So now he knows for sure something's up. Like he had had his suspicions and now he's making phone calls because he's like, I don't this. This isn't right. Like, I know for a fact now. He told them everything he knew, including that he had heard from a friend that some of the missing women's belongings were likely in Willie's trailer. Now, look, guys, I know that rumors get spread. And there's always kind of uh, the Boo Radley of the bunch, if you will. But we've got some multiple reference. accounts. I love that reference, by the way. My right? favorite book on the in the entire world. You are not the only one. There's a few of us here. So, you know, I do understand that rumors can be spread about the creepy guy. Sure. This is kind of beyond rumors, though, because at this point, we know that he literally stabbed a woman until her intestines fell out. And then shrugged her off as, you know, a drug addict that tried to rob him. So we already know he's a bad guy. It's not a question now. Um, so, like I said, he had heard from a friend that some of the missing women's belongings were in Willie's trailer. And he told them how Willie would, quote, joke about his meat grinder, telling friends that if they ever needed to get rid of a body, that was the way to do it. Do you know how many cases we have where someone will say that like someone will joke uh it happened in the uh heather teague case last week that i was on with uh beth and greg and the one of the guys that's kind of being looked at it's unsolved from a million years ago but one of the guys had made jokes about number one pig farms uh two ways you can get rid of a body would be a pig farm or to a, a shallow grave that you cover in lime so they can't keep their mouth shut you know what i mean like they have to say it it sounds like every fireman I've ever talked to. Hey, you and your old lady are having problems. I know somebody owns a pig farm. I mean, we've heard. I oh, mean, yeah. And to your point, like, I mean, it's it's always the joke. Like, that that is kind of known. Yeah. Nurses have jokes like that, too. But I won't. Just don't worry about it. I, I can't just, implicate myself in anything. So, uh so he, he so he's telling the authorities all of this. He also tell the tells the police that he suspected. Now this is a pretty big suspected. He suspected that Willie might be serving human meat at Piggy's place. I don't know. I cannot for the life of me find what got him there. Like what made him suspect that how he might think that to be true. I don't know, but it is what he told the authorities at that time. Oh my God. So police took his statement and promised to follow up. They questioned Willie briefly. Willie denies everything. 
uh, they got his consent to search his property, but they never did. All right. So around this same time, though, another person calls authorities. So now let's let's see what we got. We've got some of the sex workers on and off over the past few years that have started to say, hey, this guy, like when he shows up, our friend doesn't come back. Right. So this has been kind of an ongoing report that's been made. Then we have Bill calling twice to say these very specific things. And now we've got another guy calling around the same time, around that 99 year era um, with a much more horrible tip. This next guy that calls uh, says that his sister, Lynn Ellingson. Now, let me go on and tell you. Lynn's character leaves a lot to be desired. Later on, we find out that does not mean that she's necessarily a liar. Uh, you know, it moral ground is on a very uh, is on quite a spectrum in this story. All right. right. We'll just leave it at that. Exactly. So um, the man tells the police, though, that his sister, Lynn, had been living with Willie for quite some time. And she had Lynn had become actually a really good friend of Willie's. And I guess he was uh, pretty nice to her and she kind of helped him around the farm. She actually did a lot. So they almost formed like a sibling type relationship. Lynn and Willie did. But Lynn tells her brother that one night Willie brought a woman home from low track to party. He even had said to Lynn, hey, come with me. I'm going to go go grab a go grab a girl. Like so she knew what he was on the way to do. Um, but she went with him. She'd known him forever. So she hops in the car. She said that they drove around for a while. And finally, the woman that Willie got and Willie went to the back bedroom to have sex. Lynn says that she stayed in the living room and did some drugs, passed out. At some point later, she wakes up and thinks that she hears a noise. So she goes outside to investigate what she thinks she's hearing. And she saw a light on in the slaughterhouse. She told her brother that she went. So this is what he is recounting to police. Okay. That his sister told him. She tells her brother that she went to the slaughterhouse and opened the door to see what was going on. That's when she saw a woman's legs and feet dangling in front of her face. Uh, the woman had been strung up and disemboweled like a hog and Willie was slicing the flesh off her thigh. He let the blood drain from her body just as you would do a pig. So this is, I'm going to read you her words, her actual words when she eventually testified in court. Her, uh, she said this quote, I saw this body. It was hanging. Willie pulled me inside behind the door, walked me over to the table, made me look, told me if I was to say anything, I'd be right beside her. She told the court that the woman hanging in the barn was the person they had picked up earlier that night. She said, this woman that we had picked up at my eye level was where her feet, like her legs were. I saw red toenail polish on this big shiny table. I don't know what it was, but it was lots of blood and a uh, hair, black hair. So she was asked if she noticed um, the person's face and she said, not her face, but it was her hair. Like she had long black hair and that's what was laying on the table. I just remember her toes and she continues to talk about her toes because when they had first picked the lady up and they were just hanging out in the house, uh, the lady, she remembers recalling that she thought the lady had really pretty red toenail polish. 
So when she walks in the place, that's the first thing she sees. And she said that he made her look, but she was trying. She goes on to say over and over that she was trying not to look like she saw the legs and feet and she was trying not to look above or below what she had already seen. Uh, she was paralyzed with fear. Now, she said that there was hair on the table. Keep that in mind. Like this woman's hanging upright because legs and feet are dangling, but there's hair on the table. So a pig, if you were to feed something to a hog, meaning a human, uh, they don't digest their hair. So there would be a reason that potentially her teeth and her hair would be lying on this table because the pig wouldn't wouldn't right. be able to digest that. So you wouldn't that, be able to that, hide that. Yeah, yeah, you can't hide that at all. Right. But I can only imagine what this woman saw. Like it's bad enough that she's she's hanging, she's disemboweled, he's cutting flesh off her thigh, but also probably was just about scalped, or if, if he didn't, didn't just take tremors to her, so she's bald. You know what I mean? Mm, uh, what a yeah. horrific, horrific sight. I mean, almost Lynn's, like wild, wild, wild west Indian, you know, Indian ugh, stuff. Pioneers. And worse. Oh, and, and worse. And <laughs> way worse. But. Oh, my. Um, oh, so she screams, obviously. Uh, he basically tells her that he would give her uh, drugs and cash, but that she obviously doesn't need to say anything uh, or else she would be on a hook right beside this lady. Uh, he actually let her go. Um with that promise of essentially, if I give you drugs and cash, go and don't open your mouth. And she left. But this tip was hearsay uh, to authorities. So in order to act on it, they would need to hear it from Lynn, the actual witness. But by now, Lynn was deeply involved with the Hells Angels that had come on the property. So now she will not talk to police. So kind of they they kind of turned a wrench in that one and made sure she kept her mouth shut. Ugh, this only gets just trickier and trickier. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, this is like, I'm, I'm glad you brought me off for this one because it's <sighs> turn after turn after turn. Oh my gosh, right? So, you know, this was coming among some other victims. We have, um, we do have a report of the brother David. I want to say it was like 92. I'm not super certain uh, who was charged with sexual assault of a woman there on the property who didn't want to press charges. Uh, he got off with a slap on the wrist, I think like a thousand bucks and like nothing, like it was done. There was a lot going on here, but as the Hell's Angels got more ingrained, which is a whole separate piece to this whole entire story, uh, we have more, already we have victims that don't want to come forward because A, they're terrified. B, they're already, you know, living these lifestyles that are, you know, corrupt and could get them in trouble. And that's what they're worried about being found out about. Uh, and now you want to add a biker club to the mix, you know, um, a pretty raucous one at that, particularly in the nineties, there in that sect of Vancouver, actually, uh, at the urging of, uh, I'm not even going to say names, but someone that is that a lot of you guys that listen, know that is on Instagram and, and on, uh, on the YouTube sometimes was actually, uh, employed, somewhere in Vancouver when this was going on. And so I asked him a few questions about this uh, over Instagram last night when I was sitting at a ball game. Cause I was like, Whoa, you know, like 
you know, have you heard, did you hear different things? Like you kind of lived in this time there. How was it? And pretty much everything he said was exactly the stuff that I found out about in researching for the show, but just the, the weight of it, the, and the feel that this put on the town at the time, if you can imagine, um, it's wild. So yeah, the whole hell's angels thing on the side of it with, it was just, it's, super interesting so we've got a lot of victims not coming forward um and lynn wasn't even necessarily a victim right she was a witness and and won't speak because of the hell's angels so a bit later that year they got they got a new guy in town right so somebody else that's a little bit fresher on this police force so we have a couple of different um uh jurisdictions if you will a lot of it is going to be the uh rcmp the royal canadian mounted police so Kim Rosmo, Kim is a male who had developed a technique at this time for them. It was kind of newer uh, geographic profiling. So that's going to be finding patterns in crimes that have been unsolved, depending on geographic location. This was starting to work. So he goes to his superiors with this theory that there was a serial killer preying on the women of low track. These prostitutes that had otherwise before now kind of really been dismissed. Uh, his theory, though, was dismissed, and he stood by it nonetheless. The police continued to publicly deny that there was a serial killer, but he was sticking to his guns. He did not want to denounce his own theory. He really felt good about this, um, and because of this, he was demoted. So now he's kind of hushed. So now the families and friends of these missing women that are starting to really accumulate uh, we're getting very antsy for an investigation, as you can only imagine. Uh, yeah. uh, after tons, can you imagine? Well, and I would think that, you know, over time, we're, if you're living in that community, the whispers only grow louder. And then you find exactly. out that someone else is missing and someone else. And like it, and it appears that nothing's being done about it. Now we've got Bill who called twice. We've got the other guy who called to say what his sister had told him. I understand it's hearsay. But look at the whole picture. <laughs> look at the whole picture. That's not just one solitary phone call. So finally, after a ton and ton and ton of public pressure, that's what it took. In January of 2001, the RCMP and the Vancouver PD launched what's called the Missing Women's Task Force. So this was to start investigating these women. So as soon as they opened a tip line, as you can imagine, it was flooded with calls. This happens when it's not so notorious um, and not so brushed under the rug. Several of these calls mentioned Willie Picton and his pig farm specifically. Nothing happened for over a year. Um, you know, and I always try to be very careful about that because I know that it's not, I will always say that we as civilians are not privy to what police are doing behind the scenes. So a lot of times when the public is fussing and upset and um, thinking that police are doing nothing to help a case, you know, more often than not, they're doing a whole lot that they're not telling you about because it's none of your business to be fair. Right. And it's going to compromise the case. They're so that's right. It's not your business, what they're doing. I will say in this case, I don't feel like that's exactly what was happening. Um, I feel like a lot of the times if people felt like nothing was being done, I think really not a lot was being done. But finally, a truck driver who made deliveries to the farm called in with an unrelated tip. So this truck driver would come to deliver things to the pig farm. All right. So the Vancouver police finally decided to go on and execute a search warrant. 
at the at the Picton house. All right. Would you like to know what it was for? Illegal weapons. That was the tip that got him to the pig farm. The okay. illegal, not the not the splayed woman like in Silence of the Lambs, hanging from a meat hook in a barn, not you know the joke about a meat grinder getting rid of a body, not the stabbed woman who ran out with her intestine, but guns. All right. So they but come it, on, but, but also, I mean, it's a way in. So I mean, we'll take that take as it. as the good guys. But we'll remember, take that. As agreed. They also already had Willie's consent and probable cause to search the first time. Right. But didn't. Right. So now it's February 6th of 2002. If you back on our timeline, when Wendy was assaulted at his house and escaped, that was 1997. So that was five years ago. Okay. A lot can happen in five years. So they go to search for these illegal weapons. They get there and they find that the trailer is exactly what we expect per it's beyond filthy. There's all this clutter, but an investigator spotted an asthma inhaler in this clutter. It had been prescribed to a woman named Serena Abatsue. She was a 29-year-old woman who had gone missing in August the previous year. Hmm. Hmm. So based on this evidence, investigators obtained a second search warrant uh, this is to this time. This was for in the evidence of uh, the missing women, and in in Willie's trailer. Excuse me. Police find clothing, shoes, jewelry, uh, jars of ID cards, jars of hair clips uh, belonging to several of these missing women. Okay, so investigators needed to go in and search this entire property. This is going to be over forty acres multiple outbuildings like we touched on earlier they've even got that salvage yard like this is not an easy uh investigation this is not going to be an easy search for evidence so according to the canadian encyclopedia quote the pig farm became the largest crime scene in canadian history investigators took two hundred thousand dna samples two hundred thousand dna samples they seized six hundred thousand exhibits archaeologists and forensics forensic experts needed heavy equipment to sift through 383,000 cubic yards of soil in search of human remains the cost of this investigation was estimated at nearly 70 million dollars seven zero 70 million dollars uh, in two outbuildings alone right wonder what that would have looked like you know, budgetary wise, had they gone five years sooner. Anyway, I digress. In two outbuildings, buckets were found containing the skulls, which had been sliced um, lengthwise in half, like with a bandsaw, and hands and feet were in these buckets. So skulls, hands and feet of Serena Abatsue, that's whose inhaler they had just found. Um, Andrea Josberry and Mona Wilson. Other remains were found in other plastic garbage barrels. Investigators found more human remains cut into pieces and stored in freezers alongside ground pork and other cuts of meat. A, a note on how cluttered and disgusting this place was. It said after the first day, it took them over a day. It took them over a, a couple of days, I think, to even make their way to the freezer that was in the front of this one outbuilding. So to get through everything, just to get to the freezer, took a couple of days. So 
you guys use your put your put your thinking caps on. So why would you have buckets of skulls and hands and feet? Maybe if he's trying to dispose of everything, he's even gone so far as to remove hair because the pigs can't digest it. But do you remember what Willie's job was on that pig farm? Right. He had to go to the rendering plant. So if he takes these bodies to the pigs, the pigs do what they can with them, aside from hair and potentially teeth. And then he takes the scraps of that in buckets to the rendering plant. On first pass, the employees at the rendering plant are going to see a skull or hands and feet and know it right. to be human, right? These other bones, long bones and other things and all this other meat, they, they're just going to slip it in there and not think about it. He can't risk having a skull or human hands and feet um, skeletons there at the rendering plant. So he kept them in the buckets there at the house. All right. So, but keep in mind the last sentence I said that they found more human remains cut into pieces and stored in freezers alongside ground pork and other cuts of meat. So now we've got human remains stored along with the food product. The massive search also uncovered hundreds of tiny bone fragments scattered throughout the property. Remember, they called in archaeologists for this. You're talking you're digging up tiny scraps of bone in this huge amount of property salvage yard etc yeah. okay so yeah, this let them know you're sifting dirt you're sifting dirt at that point just to try to get something yeah like just trying or to strike gold this let them know that at least some of the women had been fed to the pigs the way they found the um the bones uh you know uh, chomped down in tiny pieces finally on october or excuse me february 22nd of 2002 willie Pickton was arrested and char charged with first degree murders Way and Wilson. These two for sure, they can say they have the evidence, they have their bodies, or they have remains, excuse me. The search of the Picton Farm continued for almost two years. Um, they eventually recovered DNA from 33 different women, not all of whom were identified. In addition, the boots and jacket that had been sitting there in the evidence locker since 1997 when Wendy was attacked. Remember that I told you they kept his boots and clothes? Uh, when he went to the hospital for his little sliced neck, they finally tested those and they were found to contain DNA from Andrea Borhaven and Carrie, Kara Ellis, two of the other miss, two other missing women uh, that had not been found. They also found DNA from Borhaven and Ellis, those same two ladies in Willie's slaughterhouse. Willie continued to get charged with more murders as this evidence mounts and mounts and mounts. All right. DNA testing uncovered more than just evidence that dozens of women had lost their lives at the Picton Farm. The Canadian health authorities had to issue a public warning in 2004. I don't think they, this, the, the way different sources read don't always tell you when it was, but it wasn't until 2004. So the search was wrapping up at this point because remember it took almost two years. So in 04, the Canadian health authorities issued a public warning about meat that had come from the farm. This was also meat that had been served at Piggy's Palace and given to neighbors pretty frequently. Uh, tests showed that it had been contaminated with human flesh. Actually, more specifically, DNA from Inga Hall and Diane Felix was found in several packages of ground pork found in a freezer on the property that would likely have been used to sell or give away to family and friends and whoever else. Uh, they also found human tissue in the meat grinder. This was like an industrial size meat grinder. Uh, 
You speechless? Are you speechless yet? It's it it just I'm I'm trying I'm trying to figure out. All right, so I go I to told, the bar. I told you that was my goal. Yep. Yeah, you did it. <laughs> but if I go to the bar, I'm like, hey, I need a you know I want a pulled pork sandwich, and all of a sudden I find out that the pulled pork sandwich had a goddamn name to it. Yeah. I need you what to know. I need you to know I was making burgers today's Tuesday. I, I don't know, maybe Friday night. Um, and I had been reading and reading and reading this case and mix. I don't, I don't eat a whole lot of beef. Uh, but sometimes if I do with the burgers, I'll mix maybe a pound of beef with a pound of like ground chicken or Turkey. And that's what I was doing. So when you mix the two together, if, if you don't, do it perfectly. Like you've got two different like colors on the patio like, before you cook it. <laughs> and it was like red and tan. And I was <laughs> standing at the stove. Like I can't, yeah, like, these will be better once they're cooked. I can't. Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah the, um, this yeah. Guy, this so, guy's a piece of work. Oh my goodness. So uh, let's see here. They also found human DNA in the barrels used to transport his scraps to the rendering plant. And we should not be surprised at this point. Right. So this is where <laughs> you ready. This is where it starts to get weird. Um, so as they search the grounds, they find remains of some of the victims. Like we just talked about the skulls and the hands and the feet, the DNA. They also found bloody clothing belonging to a victim find a jawbone and teeth belonging to one victim. This, the rest of this evidence was not um, let known to the public until after the trial, but we find out during that time that they found also a 22 revolver with a dildo attached to the barrel. And when asked, he said that it was a, essentially it was a makeshift um, suppressor. There's a lot of uses for such such an apparatus. Never would have thought of that one. Silencer. Well, there you go. Who knew? <laughs> See, look um, at me. I, I, I learned something today, Andrea. Thank you. I do what I can. This is an educational podcast. Um, so <laughs> a three fifty seven Magnum or three fifty seven Magnum rounds, two pairs of fur-lined handcuffs, a pair of night vision goggles, which for some reason that always creeps me out in this case, these kinds of cases more than anything else. Photos of a garbage can containing the remains of a victim. Uh, the DNA that the, the gun with the makeshift suppressor did have the DNA of both Picton and one of the victims on it. Uh, while Willie was in jail awaiting trial, he confessed to an undercover cop posing as his cellmate. Now, guys, I tried to rip some of that audio to play for you guys. You can just look it up, Google, YouTube it. Uh, it's difficult to hear on your own, much less if I were to try to put it through here and you can't kind of see him talk or read the closed captions. The audio is not great on it. But they have him in a cell with an undercover cop posing as, you know, a bad guy, like another criminal there. <laughs> this poor guy. He does fine. He gets what he needs from him. He's not going to win any Tony Awards anytime soon, but he takes his time and acts like he's this other tough guy criminal. Uh, and Robert Picton, the whole time he's talking to this guy, not knowing he's a cop, is eating from a plate. So he's sitting on this cot, just scraping food off. I mean, just shoveling food in, 
and telling this guy all kinds of things, telling him everything he needs to know. He, um, let's see here, we're at, here we're, where we are, where we are. Uh, he said that he was going to go for the big 5-0 and that he was disappointed, implying that he had killed 49 women. So he actually talks one time and he gets frustrated saying it's because he got sloppy. He said he got sloppy because uh, he was trying to get to 50 and that's how they found him. Uh, because, uh, let's see here, we don't, it, it was never entirely known initially how he killed his victims. Uh, but according to a witness tape on tape, Picton has claimed that he brought his victims to the farm, handcuffed them, raped them, and generally killed them by strangling them. He would bleed and gut them like you would a hog, and he would run them through a wood chipper and then feed those remains to the hogs, um, if not to the grinder. He also talks about antifreeze. So he had small syringes. Let me, you know what, while we're talking, let me show you some pictures. Guys, I'm not showing you any good pictures here. This was at the crime scene, meaning at the house, mattress of some sort, or like foam liner. I'm trying. Well, it's not showing. Let's see here. Why aren't we working here? Um, he would take syringes and there we go, and fill them with antifreeze and inject them into his victims. And he said that, that would take about five or 10 minutes. Uh, to work and it would render them uh, unconscious in that time. So we see now kind of, it looks like a, kind of like a hallway leading to a wall, like a little walk area of carpet that is not only filthy, but it appears to be covered in blood. Um, let's see here. Here's Robert, you guys. If you've not seen a picture of him, there's pictures of him everywhere. That's about as cheery and clean as he looks. Um, in this picture, he's standing with a hog hanging from a chain. Uh, he's not wearing gloves, which, I mean, I can get past that part, I guess, but he's covered in blood there. Um, we got like another one here with this hook. Say what? I said he looks like somebody you would invite to parties. Yeah, you know, like... A lot of these you look at and I think, oh, gosh, like they've got those eyes or whatever. In that picture, that one I could explain away. That one alone, I can handle. Uh, right. It's when you start looking at some of these others. This picture I'm showing here, uh, if you're just listening, it's it's Robert at his farm. And again, this looks like more of maybe the salvage yard side of things um, with this giant hook. But then it does, of course, remind me of what he did to that woman with the hook. This is a right. picture, and we're going to talk a little bit about that downtown east side more but when i told you that they compare it to skid row uh this is kind of an idea of what that looks like what you're looking here is not like a busy city street where people are hustling and bustling to work this is all um sex workers addicts homeless uh folks and it's literally that much it's that many people at all times uh in fact when i was researching for this story uh i was trying to type in to get pictures of it from the 90s when this show when this case took place um, and that picture I just showed you was actually just in 2022. So, and it looked like this then as well. Uh, I think it's, I think it's safe to say that, that if you're going down there, that you're going down for a reason. Oh, you even are. You are. Even if you're not one that lives there, 
you're going down there for a reason. You want something. Oh, yeah. You've got to, you're not going there without knowing exactly why you're going. Here's a picture, by the way. This is Dave. This is uh, Robert's brother, Robert's little brother, who, by the way, was not very nice to Robert um, coming up. So there's you some some ideas of what some of that stuff looks like. So, oh, my goodness. Let's see here. So the antifreeze, though, yes. So he would inject the victims with antifreeze because he said that, quote, gives him five to ten minutes, I guess, where he could maybe transport their bodies without them fighting to get to where he needs to take them. Um, so finally, he was charged with the murders of 27 women. Uh, he stood trial. Many more, by the way, many, many, many more went missing during this time. They just don't have the remains and can't connect him to it. So on in January of 2007, he stood trial. The judge decided to split the trial into two sections just simply because of the volume of victims. So he wanted to try him first for six of them and then another time for 21 of them. Uh, so now Willie's on trial for the murders of six women, Marnie Frey, Gina Poppin, Brenda Wolf, uh, Joesbury, Abbott's Way, and Wilson. The trial lasted most of the year, and on December 7th of 2007, he was found guilty on all counts, but not of first degree premeditated murder as had been the charge. The jury found him only guilty of second degree murder because they did not find that he would be bright enough or intellectual enough to be able to plan the murders. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Uh, this was the harshest sentence in Canada that was allowed for secondary murder. So for the murders of six women, he was sentenced to 25 years without the possibility of parole. My goodness. So, <laughs> right. In August of 2010, prosecutors announced they're not even going to prosecute the other 20 murders on the grounds that even if he was convicted, it wouldn't make any difference to his sentence. Can you imagine the families of those yeah. 20 victims? And that's where, where you asked me earlier if I was speechless, like right there, like what? Yeah. I, I, I just can't. It gets, I mean, softer as we go on. Um, there was also outrage at just kind of how the Vancouver police and the RCMP had really allowed him to victimize these women for a decade because you've got to think had this been investigated more fully in 1997 i mean we had five more years of dozens of women going missing yeah um so finally there was a lot more public public pressure and british columbia launched an inquiry into how the case was handled and in december of 2012 the commission that investigated the case released their report they called it forsaken um, they say that it pointed to blatant, quote, blatant failures by police, including inept criminal investigative work compounded by police and societal prejudice against sex trade workers and indigenous women that led to a tragedy of epic proportions, according to the Canadian Encyclopedia. That's not to note, don't forget, um, or you should know that a majority, most, um, almost all of these women were indigenous women um, there in Canada. And that's like a whole topic for a whole nother day. I know I've actually stumbled upon different podcasts and a lot of articles that are really starting to talk about that more about they're not registered. So you can't you can't get a number. They don't, it's not like a birth certificate where I'm a registered human being at this point. You can't get a number. There will not be an accurate number on these women who have gone missing. 
Um, and they were definitely looked at for a long time. And I think some would argue even almost currently as not worth the time. And that's what happened in this case wholeheartedly. I mean, even this investigation points to that. Um, one investigator said that there had been enough information in the case to file in the case file to obtain a search warrant in 1997, but the RCMP did nothing. Um, so Willie is currently serving his sentence in the Port Cartier Maximum Security Prison in Quebec. He will be 74, I believe, in October. So he's still not a very old man. His eligibility day for parole is February 22nd, 2024, you guys. If I had sponsorship by this point, I might use that money to go on up to Canada to be sitting there for that trial because that's interesting. Well, um, hint, and, hint, hint, and, what? And do, you, do you remember when we covered uh, Robert Fisher and where <sighs> with the whole Canadian stuff and, and, mm-hmm. and I'm not completely versed on Canadian law and their police work and, and how it differs from the states. But like where yeah, that one detective was like, hey, I think we I think we've got something good here. But then he was pretty much just squashed. That's literally what happened in this case. The guy was demoted. Yeah, exactly. So it's, yeah. it's so it's so ironic that you brought me on for this one. True. When the other case that we did was kind of the same thing. Yeah, you're exactly right. I forgot all about that, or that it went that way. He's actually eligible for full parole in February of 2027. Uh, just so you're aware, in case someone didn't know, which you should know at this point, if this was the maximum sentence under Canadian law he could receive, the death penalty was actually abolished in Canada in 1976. I think the last time it was even used prior to that was 1962. It was rarely used before it was abolished as it is. Um you need to know that like some just periphery stuff here, there has been a lot of talks of potentially of snuff films, films being made there on the farm uh, during this time. Uh, I don't feel like that's a far stretch, by the way. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't be shocked at all. Not at all. Uh, many believe that his brother Dave was actually involved uh, Willie has even said, he says in one of his interviews, uh, when he doesn't realize that he's being recorded as such, that he's kind of talking to himself and then he's talking to the person in there and he says, you know, like, well, if I go down for this, you know, uh, there's going to be a lot of other people. I think he said that when he was talking to the undercover cop, like, if, like they've got me on this or they keep saying that if they, you know, they got a lot of other people they're going to take down too then. So, you know, was that just something he said? A lot of people don't seem to believe that he was bright enough to do all this stuff by himself and keep it going for this long. Um, We did have the pressure of the Hells Angels. And then we do know, too, that some of the local law enforcement has patronized his establishment there at the Figgy Palace. So it's it's hard to say what's what. Um, I would be remiss to say that I didn't think that Dave knew anything about it if he wasn't directly involved. Uh, I was going to say was was. Come on. One, one guy's probably, probably not doing all of this by himself. Or at least the disposing of, right? I mean, he right. might be picking them up and having his way with them. But, um, well, and that's the thing, too. He did rape some, but a lot of times it was consensual sex. Uh, right. You know, it was just a fortunate end at the end. Well, and they say that he would actually make up an accusation to them. Like they would have, if they were having consensual sex when it was over or during, he would, he would say things to him like, you took my whatever off the nightstand. He would make up an accusation 
that was a lie against them that would help him work himself up into a rage to then enjoy the killing. Um, We have absolutely no idea how many victims actually were at the sake of Willie's hands. I've no idea at all. A little statistic here. We're kind of running long before we run it, before we wrap it up here, but um, check this out. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police has an estimate of 1,200 missing and murdered Indigenous women between 1980 and 2012. So, guys, if your math's not sharp tonight, in 32 years, they have a count of around 1,200 missing Indigenous women, missing and or murdered, okay? But there's an Indigenous or multiple Indigenous women's groups who are really trying to do things. They're trying to make a lot of uh, movement toward helping them get registered, helping them get, like, basically repatronized there. Um and they actually document this number closer to 4,000, uh, which I would assume that they're probably much more on the money, but that would be 4,000 and or murdered in the last 32 or in 32 years in that time span, which is insanity. If you said that about between, you know, however many states in the United States, like that many women had been missing and murdered in 32 years. Are you kidding? Um, and, and between 1997 and 2000. Yeah. So between 97 and 2000, the crime rate was seven times higher there for indigenous women um, than it was for non. But um, that's the case. My throat's hurt. I'm tired of talking. Man, that was that was a good one. Like a really, really good one. Holy cow. And he's just he's he's kicking it in prison in Quebec. I mean, the dude's again, not even 74 years old. Like we say all that and it feels like that whole lifetime has come and gone. It, and he is potentially, you know, he's, he's literally eligible for parole next year or in February in less than a year. Uh, I mean, I doubt he'll get it. I guess Canada. I don't know. I know we have well, some, that's, some state listeners from Canada, Canada, so don't be mad. Not knowing how it works in Canada, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's a lot. I mean, I, I pulled up, I pulled up just, you know, a quick Wikipedia just as you were going through and I, that's why I kept looking down. Mm-hmm up and i mean i got a list i got a list of the you know the the victims i'm like holy shit i mean that's crazy let me show you this as you're talking you guys just to get a visual um of these women these are the women that are suspected these are the women that are known and then suspected to have gone under uh the whole willie situation here please look at this picture these are the missing women task force is investigating all of these women. Uh, there's a number there at the bottom, one eight seven seven six eight seven three three seven seven. But these are women that are looked at to have been gone under Willie. So, and, and again, like I said, and that's to say the gentleman that I spoke with that worked in the area at the time, I think if he, I'll ask him, I'll ask him if he minds to like give a brief little, blurp about it and I'll put it up if that's okay. But, um, you know, he certainly seems to think smart guy, like I said, he he was working, um, in the area at the time. And he seems to think that basically the sky's the limit, this 30, 40, 50, that it's probably much, much higher. And, And again, you know, who knows if the motorcycle clubs were involved in any of this as well, the, the whispers of snuff films, I don't know. It just gets, dirtier and dirtier and dirtier as time goes by. And then I think about his parents and what they did to his calf. 
<laughs> he's a terrible human being, but that was so horrible to a child. <laughs> um, well, and when you look at it, like with, with with the bike clubs, like I mean, that's an easy way to traffic women yeah. in. It's it's super simple. On, on well, those, there's one percent bike club. It's super simple. And these women wanted to come in. To be fair, a lot of them yeah. did because yeah. they were. They, they needed the money. They wanted the drugs. Now, some of them, he would change his story. So he would say things, obviously, but he would say things to them like, oh, you want drugs? Come to my place. Or, oh, you're clean? Great. Come to my place. There's a lot of people there getting clean. He was known to tell more than a few women, though, um, that if you are a drug addict, like, like basically all hope is not lost and you can get clean. Um, he did not do drugs, by the way. Willie hardly drank and he didn't do drugs. Uh, you got to be sober for all this stuff. So he would tell them, though, but if you backslide, if you start using again, that your life is useless and you might as well be dead. So he had some strong opinions there. But. Um, this, well, is a good one. this was a good one, girl. I love it. Oh, my goodness. Well, I totally appreciate you coming on. And guys, when you're listening, this is Jay Keith. He is a firefighter up in the wonderful state of i can't do it i'm not from there i was gonna do the initials i can't do it oh go falls so um so he's up there in cincinnati and uh he is one of three members of the one more and i'm out of here podcast they air all the time. They just had a show tonight at 5 15. Hey, I told you I was going to do everything I could to pop on. I know. Two hours before the show, I am cramming like I'll get out again. And guys, if you're just listening, it's a live show every week. So if I flub or if we, you know, there's some dead air on all these things when you're listening as a podcast, uh, if you watch it on YouTube, maybe it'll make sense of those things. Uh, and I will throw all these pictures up on Instagram later. Guys, I've got some shirts for sale. Check them out from Minor League Studios. Phil Schofield is doing those still. Uh, I think I got the link still up on Instagram for that. Um, and I've got some fun ideas for new shirts coming up soon. Um, hint, hint, you know, we always talk about truck drivers. Hey, to our truck driver listeners, though, we love you. And like, you know, if you see something, say something. All right, guys, like, look how, look around a little bit. But um, anyway, thank you again. We will see you guys next week. Keith, thank you so much for being a part of this. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we can do it again super soon. Definitely. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. All right. You stay on and I'll touch base with you when it's all over. You guys have a great week um, and we will see you all next Tuesday.